All right, let's turn to the Word of God this morning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Oh, really? Actually, let's not do that. <laughs> the last couple of days I've been in, uh, in Adelaide, I've been speaking at a, at a, a Baptist conference, actually the Lifewell Conference uh, in Adelaide, and um, there was uh, a couple there called Grant and Sonia Smith. Do you know them? Yeah, I know they're your mum and dad. <laughs> that was great. And I found out it was actually your mum dobbed me in for it. Yeah, because she said to, apparently, I think this is the church you guys used to go to when you are in Adelaide, or she's got good friends. Yeah, okay, there. And, uh, and apparently she dobbed me in. So she said, oh, you need to get my pastor, Rob Buckingham, to come and speak. So they rang me and they did, which is great. So I caught up with you folks. And it was really, really good. So Thursday, uh, Friday and Saturday, uh, spoke three times. Shane Willard was there Thursday nights, which was so good. Uh, he didn't know I was going to be there and I didn't know he was going to be there. And he walked in and was like, ah! So we sat up very late on Thursday night talking about the Word of God. It was absolutely wonderful. So great to, to catch up with him again. Uh, Tim Costello was there as well. Uh, had breakfast with Tim yesterday. And of course, he's uh, the CEO of World Vision Australia. And it's lovely to have Liz Sato with us this morning from World Vision Nepal. She's the director of World Vision Nepal. I'm going to be interviewing her uh, in a few minutes' time. And we've also got Sam Grimshaw with us as well from World Vision Australia. So why don't you put your hands together and welcome them both. Church today. We're going to wrap up our series on exercising your spiritual senses, and uh, this one's on taking notes. Okay, am I fading in and out? Do we need an aerial? Is that better? Oh, that's better. I just have to stand like that and preach now. By the way, Chrissy's not well, so please pray for her. She's got. She's got some fluey bug. I've just had flu and pneumonia, which was a lot of fun. Um, so I was sicker than her because I had man flu. But she's lost her voice so as well. I'm not going to make any smart comment about that whatsoever. I actually did last night at Cheltenham, then realized she was watching on live stream. Hello, sweetheart. <laughs> so the kennel was a bit chilly last night. So this is on touch. And uh, we're going to pick it up from Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read a few verses. And understanding why Hebrews was written, we actually don't know who it was written by. Probably wasn't the Apostle Paul. It doesn't reflect his style of writing. Uh, my personal opinion was that it was written by Apollos because it reflects what we read about Apollos as an eloquent uh, teacher of the Word of God. But whoever it was written by, it was written to some Hebrew Christians who had been scattered because of persecution and the persecution that they were receiving was from their own countrymen uh, because they had received Jesus as the Messiah and because of that they were seen as being uh, rebels from Judaism and people were uh, sacking them from their jobs they were having their houses broken into their property wrecked and stolen and all of that kind of stuff and because of the intense persecution and pressure they were finding that uh, people the, the Hebrew Christians were walking away from Jesus. Some of them were going, you know what, enough's enough. We can't handle any more of this. And they were walking away from the new covenant and putting themselves back under the old covenant. And that's a tragedy because the new covenant is so much better than the old. 
And that's what the writer, his whole theme here in the entire letter to the Hebrew Christians was, why are you walking away from Jesus? Because what you have in Jesus is so much better than what you had before. And so he compares Jesus and the new covenant to the old covenant and the old covenant characters like Moses and Joshua and and so on all the way through. And here in chapter 12, he's comparing the experience of the Hebrews under the old covenant, particularly when they gathered around Mount Sinai and God's presence, the God of the entire universe, presenced himself on a mountain and what happened as a result. And then he talks about what happens under the new And so with that background in mind, let's read from verse 18 of Hebrews 12. He says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or or, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The light was so, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So that's the picture of people coming and experiencing God under the old covenant. Now he flips and talks about the new. Verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion, different mountain, presence of God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. What a wonderful picture that is. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. The church, the firstborn is Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, that's referring to. And and we have come to the church of the firstborn and our names are already written in heaven. Isn't that wonderful news? You've already made it. The Bible says you're already a citizen of heaven right here, right now. That's something to get happy about. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If you go back in your mind to the book of Genesis and the story uh, of, of Cain and Abel and, uh, and the fact that Cain murdered his brother and when God turned up on the scene, he said to Cain, what have you done? And understand, whenever God asks a question, he's not looking for information. He already knew what Cain had done. He was waiting for repentance. He said, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And so the blood was speaking. But what was it speaking of? It was speaking of injustice and the need for justice and vengeance to be done because of a murder taking place. And here we are, we're talking about, we come to the blood of Jesus that speaks a better message, a better word than the blood of Abel. So under the old covenant, it always cried out for justice and vengeance. Under the new covenant, justice has been done through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus now speaks to us, not of vengeance, but the fact that we've been justified. That is, we are fully pardoned. We are declared not guilty. We are holy. We are righteous with the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We are in right relationship with Him. It talks about reconciliation and redemption. Wonderful truth, relationship. And so here we see the greatness of God under, on, Mount Sinai, on Mount Sinai. I just want you to imagine this for a moment. The creator of the universe. The Bible says that God fills everything in every way. 
we, we serve a big God. Wherever you go, you will find him. And, 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 and so God is here trying to reduce his power down to one place, onto a mountain. What happened was the mountain caught fire. And then God starts to speak to his people. And Moses said, you know, like his knees are knocking together and he's scared and everyone's kind of running away screaming. Who knows? It's really hard to communicate with people when they're running away from you screaming. And so how was God going to let people know what he was really like? I'm so glad you asked that question. Let me answer it for you. The fact is that God needed a body because the only way he could actually communicate with humans was by becoming one of us. There was that horrible song back in the 90s. Some of you were, what if God was one of us? You remember that? I always used to say to the radio, he, he is but they would never speak back to me. It obviously wasn't talk back. Thank you for the groan. Isn't it funny when I say thank you for the groan, I actually get more laughter than the joke. You notice that? So God needed a body. He needed to take on human form. And when he did that in the person of Jesus, what we see in Jesus is what God is really like. You see, in times past, various people wrote about what they thought God was like, but they were actually wrong on many occasions. And it was only when Jesus came on the scene that the, the, the human race was able to have that aha moment. When we go, aha, that's what God is really like. And we know what God's like by looking at Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 verses 22 and 23 record the fulfillment of a prophetic word from, from Isaiah from almost a thousand years before when it says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And then a later editor put in brackets a description of what that means. So Emmanuel is the heavenly name given to Jesus. Jesus is his earthly name, which was an incredibly common name back in those days and, and still is in many parts of the world today. But Emmanuel means God with us. That's who Jesus is, God in the flesh, God in human form, God incarnate. The apostle John wrote these words at the beginning of his gospel, John 1 and verse 14, the word talking about the second member of the Godhead, the word became flesh, dwelt among us and we saw his glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. What is God like? Look at Jesus, full of grace, full of truth. A while later, John wrote again in his first epistle, 1 John, Chapter 1, verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the tangible God in human form. Colossians in chapter 1, verse 15, talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God. So understanding God is invisible, the Bible says God is spirit and a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. God does not have a body and so he was the invisible God. Hard to grasp something or someone who is invisible. And so in Jesus, we have the image of the invisible God. Finally, we've got something that we can see. 
Reminds me of the story of a teacher who said to her class, um, you can draw whatever you like today. So they all got their paper and crayons out. They were drawing different pictures. Uh, she was walking around looking at, at all the different pictures and there was the standard you know, house with four windows and a door and a chimney and green grass and a gate and of course the sun in the top right hand corner because that's where the sun belongs in a picture. And, and she was walking up and down and looking at different things and she came across a little boy and she wasn't really sure what he was drawing and, 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 and he said to her, uh, said to the little boy, what, what are you drawing? He said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she goes, well, it's very interesting, but no one knows what God looks like. And he said, well, they will now. And I love the innocence of kids. But you know, that's the, what you could say under the old covenant. No one knows what God looks like because no one had actually seen God but now in Jesus, we know what God is like because God has become tangible. Jesus drew a picture of God for all to see, not with crayons and paper, but with flesh and blood. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, Jesus is the perfect imprint and the very image of God's nature. You want to know what God is like? Read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. And in fact, that's one of the things that we're going to be doing next year together is uh, reading through the Gospels and teaching through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What's, Je what's God like? Look at Jesus. How did he interact with people? What was his message? What was, what was he like? What Jesus is like is what God is like. The Gospels are full of accounts of Jesus touching people and people touching Jesus. And whenever that took place, good things happened. People were healed, blessed, impacted as a result. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Some of you might still be there. If you're not, just find it. Hebrews 4. Love you to look at this together with me because this to me is one of my favorite passages in Scripture because it is a wonderful picture of what God is like in Jesus. So good. Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, we're going to pick it up from verse 14. Now, he's talking here about Jesus being our high priest. And again, remember, he's comparing the old covenant to the new covenant. So under the old covenant, the high priest once a year would sacrifice for his own sins. And then he would go into the holy of holies and sacrifice for the sins of the people. And then when he came out, the people knew that their sins were covered for another 12 month period. That was old covenant. New covenant, we have a great high priest, his name is Jesus, who doesn't sacrifice over and over and over again. He has sacrificed once and for all. And Hebrews uses that expression over and over again. He sacrificed once and for all time and once and for all people. And so now he is our great high priest who lives forever. So let's read with that background in mind. Verse 14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, the Holy of Holies, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. In other words, let's not walk away from Jesus and his church. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let's just park there for a moment. What a wonderful truth, church. We have a high priest, Jesus, who is able 
to sympathize with everything that we go through in life. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to be hungry, uh, lonely, abandoned by his best friends. He's experienced all of these things that we go through in life. And, and so we can completely relate to him because he can completely relate to us. And that's what God is like. Now, on the basis of that, look at verse 16, because the writer says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That is wonderful truth. You know, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, went and ran and hid. God went looking for them. And sometimes we act like Adam and Eve. You know, we've blown it in some way. We, we feel inadequate. We've sinned. We've, we feel weak. We feel tempted, whatever. Oh, God, I better go and run and hide. But the Bible says here, do exactly the opposite because of Jesus, because we have a great high priest, a wonderful mediator of the new covenant. He, let's, let's approach God's throne. Notice there it calls it a throne of grace. And we can do it with confidence because of Jesus, our great high priest. And it says, when we go to God's throne of grace, when we go into the presence of God, when we come toward him in those times of weakness and temptation, we receive mercy. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. So we've done the wrong thing. We should be punished, but Jesus has taken our punishment. So we receive mercy, and then it says we find grace. Grace is when God does give us what we don't deserve. And we find both of those things at his throne, in his presence. Isn't that wonderful news? And so God, I believe, when I, as I read through the scriptures, it's like God was saying, I want to know what it's like to be you. He said, I'm going to become a human being because I want to identify with human beings. What is it like to be you? I want you to hold that question in your mind because I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. And so Jesus ascended into heaven, but he still has, God still has a body on earth. God is a spirit. He needs a body to work through. God still needs a body. God came into this world as a touchable person in order to show us what he is really like. Jesus is now in heaven, but he still has a body on earth and we're part of it. It's so easy, isn't it, just to glibly say, oh yeah, the church is the body of Christ. I, I've been guilty of that over the years thinking, oh, it's just one of the analogies uh, of, for the church. And it is one of the analogies for the church, but it's so easy to glibly go, yeah, body of Christ, without actually stopping to think what that means. I want you to think about it. You have a, your, your, your spirit is housed in a body, right? Which enables you to sit here, stand here, lift your hands, uh, work through the week, do whatever you do. The, that's, the body is not the real you, but, it, but it's the spirit in you that is housed in that body. But your body allows you to touch and interact with people and your environment. And that's what God is doing in his spirit that resides in you. He is using your body to go and touch and interact with this world. And we are called to touch and interact with this world in the same way that Jesus did. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Which part of the body of Christ are you? 
What are your gifts? What are your abilities? What is your expression? God will use your body to express through your gifts and the power of his spirit, his nature to this world. So the body of Christ is supposed to be continuing Jesus' ministry of touching this world with grace and truth. But sadly, sometimes that's not the case. And the church is known to be rather touchy rather than touchable. The church is often known for what it's against rather than what it's for. Christians become separate and aloof rather than touchable. Jesus was the complete opposite. His time on earth was about connecting with people, sometimes in multitudes, sometimes in small groups, sometimes in, as individuals. He, would, he spent time with thieves and prostitutes, with business men and women, with fishermen and religious leaders, children, housewives, mothers, fathers, invalids, blind people, rich people, everyday people. Christians are the body of Christ on this earth and we are called to follow in the master's footsteps. We are called to be just like him. And so I want you to bear that in mind. Everywhere you go, you are a member of the body of Christ and you can touch this world with God's grace and truth through deeds of love and compassion. I want to come back to that question. God in Christ was asking that question, what's it like to be you? So he became one of us to find out. And now that's our job as we go out into this world, church. What's it like to be you? What's it like to be someone else? Because so easy, you know, so often the church is standing back and, and making harsh and judgmental statements about people that we've never even met. What's it like to be that person? This came out of the conference that I was, that I was speaking in uh, as different people were sharing their experience. You know, it's so easy for us to stand back and, and, and criticize an Adam Goods, for example, uh, for, for, for different things and the crowd booing and all of that kind of stuff. But what's it actually like to grow up as an indigenous person in Australia? What's it like to have a history? And, you know, I have indigenous friends all around Australia. What is it like to be them? Some of the, some of the experiences that they have had, some of the unkind words and judgmental statements and ostracizing and all of that that they've faced, that's their history. What's it like to be you? What's it like uh, to be a Muslim woman in this city after some sort of terrorist act has taken place? And, and you know, she's wearing my, maybe a burqa or, or, or a hijab and, and, and people making unkind comments and all of that kind of stuff. What is it like to be that person? And, and the compassion of Jesus will drive us to ask that question as we get to know people rather than making harsh and judgmental statements. What's it like to be you? I'll finish with this story and then I want to interview Liz. But while I was at the conference, as I say, Tim Costello was there and he shared um, yesterday about an experience that he had a while ago. Uh, he and Meredith, his wife, were invited to a fancy dress party and he decided to go as a homeless man. And so he dressed up as a homeless guy. Obviously, he hadn't shaved. I don't know if he showered for a week or whatever, but he, he, he went as a homeless person wearing 
daggy old clothes and all of that. And he obviously looked the part. On the way, he was, he was walking to the party and on the way he stopped at a shop to get some snacks to take to the party. And he walked in there to get the snacks and the owner of the store came to him and said, you need to leave. And so Tim got his wallet out. He said, why, my credit card's no good? And the person said, oh, oh, sorry. So he bought his snacks and he walked and he said he had quite a walk and, and he said it was fascinating. The judgmental stares or the people who deliberately averted their stares from him, he said by the time he got to that party he felt this big because of the attitudes of people. That is not the body of Christ. We as Christian men and women are to behave very differently. And if you've missed everything else I've said today, I want you to bear that thought in mind. I want you to take that question with you, not just into this week, but into the rest of your life. What is it like to be you? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that, Lord Jesus, you are God in human form. Thank you, God, that you became one of us that you are tangible, that as we read through the Gospels, we can know exactly what you are like because you are the express image of God. Lord, I thank you for the privilege for each and every one of us that we are members of your body, not just when we're gathered like this, but all the time. I am a member of the body of Christ I am an expression of Christ on this planet. Help us to bear that in mind, Lord, everywhere we go, that we would take your nature full of grace and truth everywhere to touch this world with love, grace, and compassion. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Well, I'm going to invite Liz to come right now. Maybe we can just lose that uh, platform. Uh, sorry, the, um, oh, you got seats? Isn't that nice? Lovely. I'm so glad we get to sit down. Well, I get to sit down. <clears throat> All right. And we have the... Do you want to just grab that mic for Liz? That'd be fantastic. Well, it's lovely to have Liz here with us for this weekend. We deliberately um, saved the expression of touch, the spiritual sense of touch, for this weekend when we found out that Liz was going to be visiting and that, and that she was going to be able to be with us for the whole weekend here at Bayside um, because uh, this is a wonderful example uh, of touch, the way that as uh, the director of World Vision in Nepal, um, uh, along with her staff and team, that they're being able to touch Nepal with God's, <clears throat> God's love and grace at this particular time. And so, Liz, welcome. Thank you. Lovely to have you here with us. Tell us a bit about yourself, because you haven't been in Nepal that long. Just tell us about the background and what you've been doing over the last few years. Okay. Um, I've been in Nepal for about a year. I'm uh, half Japanese-American, half British, but my father was a medical missionary in India. So um, I, I actually was born and raised in India, even though I'm not Indian. <laughs> Okay. Um, and funnily enough, the area where I grew up is full of Nepalis. It used to be a part of Nepal in the past. Okay. Yeah. So you've you got a very interesting background, and I, I love the, the American accent, except when you said British. <laughs> I thought, I heard the British come out when you said British. Do you hear that? Yeah, it's that was, a sliding accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's delightful. Now, tell us some of the places you've worked, because you've been in some real 
amazing places over the years. Yeah, so for much of my career, I've been in an emergencies team. Um, so I started off in Gujarat after the earthquake. Then I went to Jerusalem, West Bank and Gaza for two and a half years. Then the Pakistan earthquake. Um, I, I worked in Haiti and the Japan tsunami. I've been in wars, in, in conflict, <laughs> had been shot at, <laughs> you name it. Um, so yeah, that, that, was, that was my career. And then I got a bit tired. I actually got a bit burnt out after Japan, after the tsunami. And I decided I, I needed a change. I ended up, this was my first development job. And that, the difference is it's supposed to be slow, long-term. You know, you look at child well-being over many years. So I got to Nepal, and after 10 months, uh, the earthquake hit. So I was back into emergency mode again. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's what you've experienced in the past, and isn't it, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? So often we can have a particular picture in our minds about the will and purpose of God. And I love it. Like, from what you're saying, you, you, you wanted to go to Nepal for a bit of peace and quiet, and, you know, and without, of course, realizing yeah. what was about to strike. That's right. So when the earthquakes came, what was it like? It was terrifying. Um, I, I think I said in another service that, um, you know, after all those years of really dangerous situations, I re hadn't felt afraid. And when this earthquake hit, it was a Saturday afternoon. We were playing indoor football, and you know, it was a really fun, relaxed atmosphere. And I think the difference for me was when this earthquake hit, you know, we I was thrown to the ground. We watched motorcycles tip over. Is is like a like that? It's almost like the earth flung us. Um, and then it continued to shake most of the day. And I actually cried. And it was shocking to me that I cried because I don't cry very easily. I'm not afraid. And it was like this outburst of fear from the past. And then I kind of pulled it together and got on with things. Um, but a big difference for me is, is the experience of fear. Um, and, and, you know, I'll throw it out to you. What are you afraid of? Because now it turns out I'm afraid of earthquakes. We're all afraid of things. And over the past four months, I've really grappled with what does it mean to be a Christian? And what does that mean for the things I'm afraid of? Like, you might be afraid of losing your job or somebody dying. You know, we're all scared of different things. But for me, it's very real because the earth was actually shaking beneath my feet. Yeah, which would be incredibly scary because, you know, we... we, we kind of, I mean, right now we're thinking we're not scared because we, we know that the chairs we're sitting on and the ground that we're uh, on is actually stable and safe. Yeah. Or at least we believe so. Yeah. But for something to change so quickly yeah. um, and, and for you to actually be quite helpless in the middle of it must, must have been incredibly frightening. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was bad enough for me, but worse for our staff who have elderly parents and small children. So that panic when the, all the networks were down and people couldn't contact their families, mm. you know, that kind of desperation, like, are they okay? Are yeah. the kids okay? Yeah. And, you know, thank God is on a Saturday. It's a one day of the week that Nepali children don't go to school. And given how many schools collapse, the death toll would have been, out, you know, yeah, it would have been yeah. phenomenal. So, and then there was the second earthquake, of course, and lots of aftershocks. So yeah. Is, is, are there still aftershocks happening? Yeah, just before I left, there were a few, they're not that very big, like 4.3, 4.4, but enough to 
to shake you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm trying yeah. to follow you in your and my your, terrible your humor. And your humor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. I wouldn't suggest that. No. Given no, the response, I think I'll avoid it. No one. No one laughs. You know, they laugh more at statements like that than they yeah. do at the actual joke itself. But that's okay. That's welcome to my life, you know. Um, so uh, the initial focus of World Vision, what, what was that? Because there you are uh, in the middle of all of this as an, as an aid agency. And of course, many of the staff actually lost their own homes. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you lose everything, but then go to work and help other people who've also lost everything? It's phenomenal. Um, I'm, I'm so amazed by our Nepali staff. Um, like you said, many of them lost homes or the homes were just too dangerous to sleep in. So they were outside and it was dumping rain for about five days, it bucketed and it was very cold. We were all sleeping outside you know, and it's raining. So imagine camping with, with no equipment. Um, and they were there with their children. And one of, you know, actually a couple of them said, it's been hard to come into work because my little son was clinging onto my leg, sobbing, saying, don't leave me, the house is gonna fall on my head. You know, so most people are spending all their time outside because they don't trust the, the building codes. Um, but the weather's so bad and you, they're kind of making these really difficult decisions. Like, do we go inside and dry off and have the house possibly fall on our heads? Or do we stay outside where the kids are cold and wet, but we know we're safe? Mm. So every day people are sort of making these, these decisions. That, that is so like hard. Yeah. Yeah, it's really and then, difficult. of course, being in that situation and going out and helping other people. Yeah. So what did World Vision staff do straight away after the earthquake? Um, we started distributing shelter materials, so like tarps and rope, um, blankets. But we ran out of supplies very quickly. Like in the whole country, you couldn't buy a tent to save your life. Um, we got supplies in later, um, got those all out. Um, so the biggest needs are shelter and then child-friendly spaces. So think about your kids and the distress they would feel if they went through something like this. And then no more school. So kids miss their friends. They don't get to go to school, no routine. Parents are distracted. Some of the, the children we spoke with said, I, I'm scared to leave my mom and dad, but they're really busy right now. Because their parents are trying to pull together their lives, literally digging through the rubble. So we set up child-friendly spaces. So those are spaces for people. Um, they can send their kids. It's almost like daycare. They play, they learn, and it, it's to have, help reestablish routine and give children a, a kind of a way to come back to being normal. Um, and then we also did temporary schools a bit later. Wonderful. So shelter schools. Um, we've done you know taps and toilets. All the things you would need if you, if you lost everything you have. Yeah. Yeah. So I think up to now we're we're close to helping two hundred thousand people. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Two hundred thousand. Yeah. And of course there are other Christian aid agencies and other groups working. Yeah. Uh, in Nepal as well. Now Nepal is uh, predominantly a Hindu country. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned to me previously that your um, staff are a mix of Christian and Hindu. Yeah, mostly Hindu actually. Okay. Yeah. How, how, do they get all get on well? Yeah. Um, you know, for for some of our Hindu staff, like I've talked to them like are you comfortable working with a Christian organization and one guy actually leads our spiritual reflections and I said you know you don't have to do this and because now I love Jesus it's he's helped me change the way I treat my wife um, so there's a That's kind of awesome. a positive when when relatives are sick our Hindu staff ask us to pray for them mm. um, so it's quite a positive feel within the organization outside in Nepal, there's increasing hostility towards Christians. The church is growing very quickly, but um, there's a real, especially in the government and sometimes in the media, a real anti-Christian wave that's coming through Nepal. Mm. Um, Christians have historically been persecuted, a very small minority. Um, 
the staff who I said earlier to you, I, mean, I said, I said, what do you think the future is going to look like? And he said, oh, more persecution, which will be good for us. And I was taken aback. And he said, you know, when I was five, I was in prison because my mom participated in a baptism and the whole, they just locked up the whole family. Wow. So our staff remember things like that, but they're quite relaxed about <laughs> persecution coming. They think it will strengthen the church. Yeah, so, and uh, invariably it does, of course. And yeah. as you say, the church is growing fast yeah. in Nepal. Uh, yeah. it's, it's one of the one of the strange things as you read through church history and, and, and look at the church under persecution, it still grows like wildfire. Yeah. And uh, and often think of, you know, the analogy of actually trying to put out a bushfire with your foot. And, and, and that's what, what people do. They try and stamp out the church by persecution, but <laughs> off it goes, you know. Yeah. And I, I, from, from from what I've been reading over the last little while, it looks like things are going to get tougher in Nepal. They're working on a new constitution yeah. at the moment with some fairly stringent rules and regulations around proselytizing. So proselytizing is right now illegal, mm -hmm. or they say proselytizing or trying to force someone to convert. Right. Um, conversion is legal, but like if a pastor pa uh, participates in a bat baptism, they need to prove that the person wants to do this. So they might need a written statement. Um, and, and, you know, imprisonment is definitely, you know, on the table as an option. Um, so the atmosphere is definitely getting harsher for Christians in Nepal. And I know from, from our side, and this is something I, I'd really like you to pray about, we have all these international staff in, and the government's becoming very anti-giving visas. And also, you know, there are concerns about, well, the government said to me, uh, you're you're converting people, and when we say no, we're not. We're here to do relief and development. It turns into quite a hot discussion. Right. Um, so you know, I, I believe you can you can spread the, the the word of God by being loving. I I completely believe that by being consistent and reflecting the love of Jesus, mm -hmm. being that body. Yep. Um, on, on earth and I think it's St. Francis of Assisi who said, you know, preach the word at all times and when necessary use words. Yeah, love that. Um, and I, I really, I say that to our staff, our work is our prayer. Let's, let's live out what we believe. We don't yeah. have to stand there and preach. Yeah. In fact, you know, for me, I, I know that what's drawn me to God over and over again is, is people's lives. It's not yeah. somebody talking to me. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So true, so true. Just to wrap up um, the future, so what, what's your plans with World Vision uh, work-wise in Nepal for the yeah. next one, two, three years? So we have a huge amount of work to do. I mean, just the earthquake alone took, knocked out a third of Nepal's economy and it was already a very poor country. Um, I think 25% of the population is below the local poverty level. 44% mm. of the children are malnourished. So we have ongoing development work outside of the earthquake areas, but even within the earthquake, we're, we're, there's just so much to do. We have to rebuild um, shelters, schools, health posts, um, and then our ongoing development work, which is much longer term. How long do you think it's going to take for Nepal to recover from this? Because it's so easy, isn't it? I mean, our 24-hour news cycle has already moved on. We've already forgotten about Nepal by and large. And that's why as a church community, we, we, we bring someone like Liz in or we show you a DVD. And uh, Liz is actually going to uh, give me um, some footage as well of, ch of children talking about the earthquake. And we'll show that, say, like in four to six weeks' time, just so that as a church community, we can realize the media's moved on, but 
everything is not perfect. It's going to take... Oh, eight, eight years, maybe? Right. <laughs> I mean, it's a huge, huge amount of work. And yeah. I really appreciate your ongoing support. And I also want to say thank you for the support you've shown us up to now. It's been... Yeah. I mean, you're doing your part of being God's body. And yep. then we're, you know, we carry that on at, at the Nepal end. Yeah, so that's wonderful. You. That's our pleasure. Uh, we received special offerings, of course, when the earthquake happened. I, f I forget the exact amount that we ended up giving about $11,000, yeah, okay. And of course you can donate any time if you want to just go onto the World Vision website. And I imagine there's a Nepal fund. Yeah, yeah, you'll go check that out after this. Yeah, okay, but you can direct your gift accordingly. I'd love it as if as a church we could, we could pray uh, for Liz and Sam and World Vision right now. So can we stand together? And uh, as and some of the leaders, Nathan, if you just want to gather around Liz and lay hands on her, and uh, why don't you stretch your hands out as an act of faith and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for Liz. We thank you for her time this weekend to come and share with us as a church community. Lord God, we are encouraged and inspired by her and by the word of her testimony, Lord God. Uh, we pray, Father, for her as a person that uh, all of the trauma that she has experienced, not just in Nepal, but in so many other nations, Lord, that you would bring uh, strength, healing, and encouragement into her own life, Lord, that she will find uh, in you and in your people all of the strength and resources that she needs for all that you have called her to do. We pray for your blessing on World Vision Nepal, on all of the staff, Hindu and Christian. Lord God, you love us all the same. And uh, Lord, I pray as they work together as a team, uh, reaching out, helping the people of Nepal, that you will bless them. We pray for the church in Nepal. We thank you that it is growing. And even though persecution may increase, we thank you, Lord, that uh, your church will increase as well. We pray for the flames of revival to burn strong in the length and breadth of the nation of Nepal, Lord God. Turn it into a Christian nation, Lord Jesus. And may your body be active and alive in that nation. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.